we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are the rock of ages. We thank you that our great hope uh, is in you. And uh, we, just, we just praise you, Lord. We continue to praise you. As, as Heather said, we can remember the, the resurrection uh, on and on. It's not just uh, about the cross and the resurrection on one Sunday, but it's for every day. And we thank you, Jesus, that you're our hope. And we thank you that you not only came and taught us, but, but you, you taught us how to live, and you gave us an example of how to live. And so we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for what we hear today, even in a, a text that we've perhaps heard many, many times. But we just come and rejoice in you and give you the praise and the glory and the honor. In Christ's name, amen. I'm going to read... Uh, the Beatitudes, I'm going to read Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12, and then we'll kind of hone in on um, verse 3 in particular, uh, the first Beatitude. But uh, like a lot of uh, sermons in a series, I've got to lay some foundational groundwork today, and I know that's not always the most exciting material, but I, but I, I need to lay that for us uh, this morning. But I hope you'll find it uh, encouraging. Matthew 5, verses 1 to 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Amen. <laughs> Let's go back to Matthew 5, verse 1. And it says simply there, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. That's all the fanfare we get for the greatest sermon ever preached. It's Jesus' first recorded sermon, which we know as the Sermon on the Mount, but there has been no greater sermon. The sermon has lasted 2,000 years, and it still speaks to us today. My sermons don't last 2,000 hours, you guys. But, but the text doesn't even tell us what mountain Jesus was on. Or what time of day it was. Jesse saw the crowds. He went up on a mountain. He sat down, uh, as was the, the way rabbis taught in that day. His disciples gathered around him. In verse 2, he opened his mouth and he taught them. Easter evening, Jeanette and I watched an episode of The Chosen. And it happened to be the episode on the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Chosen's version, a lot of planning went into this sermon. 
Uh, the chosen depicts Jesus and Matthew planning and, and writing the sermon while other disciples are, are looking for the perfect place, a place that Jesus had in mind. The, the, the disciples in the chosen, are, they're also handling uh, flyers and they're giving them out in town and they're advertising for this great sermon. They're also building a, a kind of crude stage. And I think the chosen generally does a marvelous job. But movie directors often add their own interpretation and their own flair to things that are simply not in the biblical text. And in the case of the chosen directors, I think they went a little too far on this one. But I think they had the best of intentions. They wanted us to think about what could have been going on behind the scenes. And sometimes we pastors do that. We enter a text and we want you to think about what could have been going on. What were the emotions? But in this one, I think the chosen went just maybe a little too far. It's my opinion. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying to say that you shouldn't watch the chosen. All in all, it's a wonderful series about the life of Christ. And the, and the thing I, I love the most about it is it shows the real human side of Jesus. But here, maybe a bit too far. For example, the Bible doesn't even indicate any recruitment of the crowd. Rather, the Bible says at the end of Matthew chapter 4 that the crowds were already following Jesus, beginning with verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel, the gospel of his kingdom. Jesus had already been preaching and teaching, and people were following him, but Matthew doesn't record any of those earlier sermons. Continuing in verse 23, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons and epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond all Jerusalem. And then chapter 5, verse 1 again, simply says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples gathered around him. They came to him. No planning for the message. No working on a stage. No advertising. You get the sense that, that Jesus saw the crowds, and once again he had compassion on them, and he wanted to teach the masses. He wanted to seize this opportunity to preach. Another quick point I would make this morning by way of introduction is that this is Jesus' first recorded sermon. My first sermon wasn't worth recording, folks. <laughs> I'm just being honest here this morning. It wasn't worth recording. But this was his first sermon recorded. Second, I find it interesting that pastors sometimes think that we've got to speak for like 45 minutes, but the Sermon on the Mount is only three chapters long. You can read it from beginning to end in 15 minutes or less. And he says, Jesus says more in 15 minutes than I could say in a lifetime. It's powerful. I don't know if we'll look at the entire Sermon on the Mount. We're certainly going to look at the Beatitudes. I'm, I'm still trying to figure that one out. But even if you only read the Beatitudes, you quickly see that this wasn't a therapeutic, feel-good sermon. Jesus was preaching to reorient the lives of his followers. He, he was making it clear that his kingdom was like no other. 
And if you've never seriously looked at the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount, you find some of this material shocking. And I think even if you heard it many times, it continues to provoke us. It continues to challenge us because it goes counter against much of what our culture values and teaches. One of the things I believe the chosen quote got right was the scene where Jesus explains to Matthew that he had come to lead a revolution. Then Jesus makes clear that he said a revolution, not a revolt. Now, I know there's no such conversation recorded in the Gospels, but I think the the point is valid. Jesus introduced a revolutionary way of living in the Sermon on the Mount and in the Beatitudes. And it's a way of living as Jesus lived. The goal here is to reorient our lives to Christ, to His teaching, to His manner of living. We refer, of course, to Matthew 5, 3-11 as the Beatitudes, as I've been saying, because of the word blessed. Beatitude is a state of being blessed, a state of being happy, or as Webster's defines it, a state of utmost bliss. So before we get into all the Beatitudes, and, and this Beatitude in particular, the first one, I want to just define the word blessed here a bit. Commentator James Boyce points out that the word blessed has a lot of definitions in various backgrounds as it's come to us in English. First, it can be a blessing almost like you and I bless a meal. But this this comes more from the sacrificial system. It's a blessing as in to consecrate something that's going to be given to the Lord. Another word or a way to use the word blessing is to speak well of someone or to speak well of something. The sense of the word blessed like this is used in Luke's gospel, where in the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus says, chapter 6, beginning with verse 27, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. What does it say? Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. So it's to bless someone. It's to think well of someone, even if they've persecuted you. Then a final use of the word bless comes from a word that's similar in spelling, and it's the word bliss. And this word means to be happy. It means to be joyful. It's, a, it's this definition of bless that's being used in the Beatitudes. It, the Beatitudes speak of a happiness or a joy or a blissfulness that comes not from outward circumstances. It's a deep spiritual and profound joy that comes from our relationship with Christ. It comes from knowing that you and I have God's approval because of Christ's sacrifice. We have grace. Billy Graham in his study on the Beatitudes wrote that this kind of blessedness, this kind of happiness is a portrait of Jesus. He wrote, if by happiness we mean serenity, confidence, contentment, peace, joy, soul satisfaction, then Jesus was supremely happy. His happiness was not dependent on outward circumstances. He did not have to have an outward stimulus to make him happy. He moved with calmness 
and certainty, serenity, even through the most difficult trials of life, including his own death. Certainly, if anyone had genuine happiness and blessedness, it was Jesus. The entire Sermon on the Mount teaches us to live as Jesus lived. And surely the blessedness spoken of in the Beatitudes is a portrait of Jesus. Surely Jesus was meek, and yet He owns the entire earth. No one hungered and thirsts after righteousness more than Jesus. No one was or ever will be more merciful or purer in heart than Jesus. This is a portrait of Jesus here in the Beatitudes, and it's revolutionary. It was counter to the culture then, and it's certainly counter to the culture now. And what makes his teaching so powerful, folks, so effective, is Jesus didn't just talk about it. He modeled it every day. He modeled it every day. By his life, by what he teaches, we can learn a blessedness, a happiness, a bliss that is far beyond anything this world can offer. Every one of us can probably tell a story about pursuing happiness in something or someone only to find that it left us empty. Some pursue happiness by money. We, we start to think, if I could just get $1,000 in the bank, I would be happy. Then I get 5000 then 10000 then 50000 and so on. And look, I'm not putting down saving. I'm trying to save myself. Everyone ought to put away a nest egg. But, but it... Do we do that as a necessity of life? Or, or because that's our primary pursuit of happiness? Some pursue happiness through fame, and we all know that that does not guarantee happiness. In fact, constantly being in the public eye is more apt to get you criticism than it's going to get you fame and praise and happiness. Some think that we'll, we'll be happy if we have power, so we climb the corporate and political ladders ever seeking more power. And some do well and some even enjoy it. But many also become disillusioned and burn out. In the Beatitudes, Jesus is talking about a very different kind of blessedness. It's a happiness that can only come from God in a relationship with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It can only come by, by trusting in Christ, folks, and seeking to model our lives after his. That's why someone's referred to the Beatitudes as the standards for being divinely happy. Standards for living as citizens of the kingdom. The Beatitudes are what another has referred to as the beautiful attitudes of the kingdom. They give us the character of those who are children of God. They're beautiful attitudes for, for walking in the footsteps of Jesus. And that's why I believe the first beatitude is so foundational. I can only believe Jesus was very intentional when he laid out the beatitudes. In verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Without this beautiful attitude, one cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what is this attitude? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, let's begin this morning real quickly with what it's not. It's not poverty. It's not taking a vow of poverty. 
of being poor. A person could give away everything he or she has and still lack this quality, what's spoken of here. It's not poor in spirit as in one who lacks drive and just says, oh, woe is me, and I don't have any enthusiasm for life. Proverbs is very clear that laziness is condemned. It's not the conviction that you and I have no value whatsoever. It's, it's not the absence of self-worth. It's not going around thinking that we're zeros. Such an attitude is not biblical. Christ died for us, so you're valued, beloved. You are valued. The word poor here in classical Greek means, listen to this, someone who crouches about begging. Kent Hughes writes, it denotes a poverty so deep that a person must obtain his living by begging. He or she is fully dependent on the giving of someone else. They cannot survive without help from the outside. So if we put poor together within spirit, those poor in spirit acknowledge that they are spiritually bankrupt that we need help from the outside. We can't save ourselves. It's an awareness and an admission that we are utterly sinful and without the moral, we have no moral values adequate enough to save ourselves, to make us right with God. In other words, what we have here in this first beatitude is a very strong statement of the great doctrine of justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone, by grace alone. The poor in spirit are those who understand our complete inability to save ourselves. There's no human effort that's going to save us. Only those who trust in the grace of God in Christ Jesus receive the kingdom of heaven. The spiritually proud, the self-sufficient, those who, who think there's something within them that will make God accept them, well, folks, those people are lost. Again, I, if I may quote Kent Hughes, those acknowledge, who acknowledge themselves as spiritually bankrupt, they're the ones who enter the kingdom of heaven. No one enters without such an acknowledgement, regardless of how many times we walk an aisle or raise a hand or sign a decision card or pray the sinner's prayer, unless we understand that it's only by grace in doing those things that we understand it's only by the grace of God in Jesus Christ that we are saved. We must have a beautiful attitude of humility. That's what this is talking about. A beautiful attitude and accept Christ's grace. And you know what's wonderful about this beatitude is we never outgrow it. The only way to keep growing in spiritual blessings is to keep understanding our spiritual insufficiency. The only way to grow in spiritual maturity is to understand how desperately you and I need the ongoing grace of Christ. That's how we keep growing. When we suddenly think somehow we've arrived, we stop growing. We're always in need of God's grace. My dad used to tell me so many times, son, don't get too big for your britches. It works here. 
son or daughter, don't think you've arrived. Oh, you're making progress. Of course we all are. I hope, I hope we're making progress. But we need God's ongoing grace to keep entering into the sanctification process. To look back and know that who we were yesterday is not who we are today. We need God's grace. We need His grace. Beloved, do you have a true poverty of spirit? Do you understand? Do you understand that you cannot save yourself? Can you sing with Augustus Top Lady, Thou must save and thou alone? In my hand no price I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Let's pray together. Lord, this is hard for some of us to hear. And you're not saying that there's not some great people out here and, and that we don't all do some, we do some good things. But at the end of the day, we can't save ourselves. We must fall upon your mercy and trust in the cross. For the, for the blessedness we seek after so much, we must trust in your sacrifice. There, there is no other way. Some of us, we, maybe we tried. Maybe we tried and we eventually found that it was futile. Maybe we're still trying today and, and we're learning maybe even in these moments that it's futile. We cannot save ourselves. Lord Jesus, it's so true that thou must save and thou alone. So again this morning, poor in spirit, with nothing to offer you, instead we receive what you have offered, and to thy cross we cling. Give us humility to trust your saving grace, and humility to trust your ongoing sanctification. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.